Hello and welcome to Cannon and Cockerel. My name is Michael and I'm a Spurs fan. I'm Jason and I'm an Arsenal fan. And uh, it's almost 2023. Um, the Premier League is back uh, after a victorious World Cup for Argentina. Um, and it seems like Arsenal and Spurs have pretty much both picked up where they left off when the season uh, paused for the World Cup. Um, Jason, how are you feeling about... I guess, how the World Cup went, about Arsenal's return to the Premier League, the 2022 coming to a close, 2023 about to begin. How are you feeling at this uh, transitional moment of the, the season in the calendar? Oh, you'll probably hear my smile right now. I'm feeling very smug. Um, am I feeling most smug that a Spurs player ruined England's chance at the World Cup? Um, no, I'm not feeling smug because at the end of the day, it was devastating for all. Um, Harry Kane gave me a very happy moment when he scored his penalty against France. Um, at least it wasn't an Arsenal player this time, but I think the World Cup was strange. I don't know about you, but it almost feels like it didn't happen. I feel like I feel like people were forgetting the fact that when the World Cup usually happens, work is always a little bit lighter. It is physically lighter. You can go out and have barbecues and drinks and it's all light and bright outside. And things just felt that kind of semi-gloomy and I felt a bit detached. It was like things were going on in another universe. Um, and it kind, of just, it kind of just plodded by. And I think once England went out, it was kind of like, all right, whatever, until the final, which was unbelievable. And I think even during the early stage, it all just felt quite quite obvious I suppose and and easy um I can't you know what Michael I can't even remember who did we play in the last 16 Senegal yeah yeah I, I can't remember it I mean it, it just feels like it's memorable for the fact that Messi won the World Cup but other than that I can't even remember that much and I don't know I, I think it just I think maybe because the club season was going so well it kind of you know, it, I think I appreciated England more than I usually do when it's actually here. But actually, it wasn't as exciting for me as the the potential of, of what's happening in the Premier League. And it kind of went out with a bit of a, a good whimper. I think we were getting a little bit fatigued at Arsenal. We were getting results, but it was like we just needed that break to reset and say, right, calm down. Look at where we are. We're doing amazingly. Get some players back from injury. And kind of plan for what's going to happen next. And to an extent we did that. I think the the good thing with the World Cup is pretty much all our players went out by the quarterfinal stage. So when we played West Ham a few days ago, we actually had a full lineup. The only sad part is that Gabriel Jesus, our main striker and talisman and probably the guy who's made all the difference this year, is now out for a while. But I don't really blame Brazil or anything like that because he only played for like half an hour in one game so actually I'm pretty sure that was an injury waiting to happen and so if it hadn't happened there it might have happened afterwards at Arsenal and in a way it gave us that time before the season's restarted to say okay Eddie and Ketia let's get you in the mindset now and train with you and make you the main man and whilst I don't think it's the long-term solution it might just work until we get Jesus back and we have such great attacking talent throughout the team as well that I think it'll be okay and it sounds like with the window we're going to be adding a few more and I'm sure we'll touch upon that but no to, to, to come back against West Ham you know a little blip with that penalty giving away but you know penalties happen all the time it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily mean that you were playing badly or or the other team were playing that well it's just a blip in time of of a game and if we'd come to nil nil at half time we would have said okay that's all right and we came out we showed our stuff we played good football we scored good goals we we and we we showed why we're top of the league this season so I'm very proud and excited and I, I'm worried because I feel like we have something to lose now but actually I think it's against that reframing of expectations and if we look at it in this the lens of we need to be back in Champions League this season or for next season. We're looking good. If we look any further, then we start to get a bit worried. So, listen, in comparison to how we, how we 
invested and I think we invested well this summer and quite considered actually um, and how the players have developed and how Mikel Arteta has clearly learnt from his mistakes as well. I think it's been a very good um, restart and long may it continue but you know tricky games in the next few got Brighton and Newcastle and then the United and Spurs will creep up quickly an FA Cup tie in the middle so I think reinforcements will be needed but I think I'm even more delighted with and even more happy with number one Spurs players going very far in the tournament so you know Hugo Lloris he had such a busy time um, that he they couldn't be bothered to turn up to uh, turn up to the match and make sure that the the great Fraser Forster really showed his uh, potential for number one at Spurs. And, um, you know, Harry Kane again having a bit of um, tournament trauma. So, yeah, I'm happy to see that that, that hangover went into uh, into the Premier League and uh, Conte's lucky strategy-less team dropped some points as well. Well, I mean... I mean, I was happy to see um, a Spurs player win the World Cup for the the second tournament in a row. Hugo Lloris in 2018, Christian Romero in 2022 was almost Lloris back to back, and it was it was great to see the two of them uh, playing their part in in what was probably the greatest World Cup final of all time. Um, but the the flip side of that is, of course, when you have this um, very strange season with such a, a tight turnaround between the World Cup and the season resuming. That yeah, neither of them were. Well, Lloris was there just on the bench. Uh, Romero wasn't there at all. Um, I, I feel like Conte had probably promised Fraser Forster the start, considering Forster had been there over the World Cup working with the team. Maybe he thought Lloris, whether it be mentally or physically, being out of the Carabao Cup as well, there's probably very few opportunities Forster will get to play between now and the rest of the season. So maybe that was sort of a... Um, a bit of a, a bit of a sympathy selection, I don't know. Um, but look, Brentford away, a draw isn't the worst result in the world. I think when you look at it objectively, a lot of teams have gone there and struggled. Obviously, United got thrashed there earlier in the season. Uh, just before we broke for the World Cup, Brentford went away to, to City and won. Um, obviously, I know Arsenal went and won there this season, but we saw what Brentford did to Arsenal last season. Uh, we only drew when we went to Brentford uh, last season, I think the same with Liverpool. So it's it's a tough place to go. They're a good team, a well-coached team. They had, I think, no players at the World Cup, or maybe only one, uh, Norgard, I think, who was basically a sub for Denmark most of the time. So they were obviously a lot fresher. Uh, we had, you know, I think on uh, the Amazon coverage before the match, they showed the difference in minutes between, um, you know, clubs and, and how many minutes their players have played at World Cup and Spurs were right up there near the top. Interestingly, Arsenal weren't even in the in the top five. Um, they only showed the top five and then Brent, however low Brentford were. I'm guessing Arsenal would have been potentially in the top six, but I'm not sure. And I wonder actually how much. I mean, you said it yourself with none of your players going past the, the quarterfinal, I think it was. I wonder how much that will benefit you um, now that the season has started again. Um, but I think when you consider all those things, I think, uh, you know, draw wet Brentford, it's not a disaster. And I think... The fact that we uh, got better as the game went along, uh, looked fitter as the game went along, uh, as opposed to Brentford, who were, who were tiring as the match went along, is, is a testament to the fitness work. Uh, Ivan Perisic, who had played really just as long at the World Cup as Larissa Romero. I mean, he played in the third, fourth place playoff, so he played just as many games and played almost every minute for Croatia. And he was probably the fittest player on the pitch by the end of the game. He, whether it was Spurs or Brentford, he was the one covering the most ground and, and making the most happen. So it goes to show that age is just a number. Um, but I think what's, what was disappointing was the the manner of the the draw and the fact that it was it was Groundhog Day. It wasn't Boxing Day. It was the same old story. We literally picked up where we'd left off in, in starting slowly, falling behind. And it's that mixed emotions of on the one hand, you're happy that you come back and you show that character and that mentality to lucky. come back. Well, you could argue we were unlucky not to win the game. I think if you looked at the stats by the end of the match, we were the team who probably deserved to win. We hit the bar. We had a clear penalty denied. And there was a goal scorer for Brentford who's probably not going to be playing a lot more this season, depending on the outcome of certain investigations, which you could say was unlucky that we we get to play a team just before that a, a certain player maybe is is no longer available for them. 
so you know the luck can go both ways you can say it was luck to come back but also unlucky not to win when you look at the match as a whole um but yeah on the one hand you're happy that the team um never knows when they're beat and that's a, an invaluable quality to have to know that the game's never over to know that you're going to fight to find the final whistle and you, you you have that ability to come back but you wish you didn't have to keep on showing that ability and that you could start games on the front foot and i think you know, before the break, we were winning these games. We were getting the winners against Leeds and against Bournemouth and against Marseille and whoever else. Um, against Brentford, we only got the draw. And obviously, the, the better teams you play, they're not going to give you that chance to, to to come back. So you have to, you know, we need to put in a 90-minute performance. And the hope was that over the break, that maybe with players who weren't at the World Cup, like Basuma, um, Doherty, that Conte had had the chance to work with them and maybe those players could have their kind of time to shine. But I've got to be honest, Oxy, I don't think really did anything that Emerson Royale hasn't done. And Basuma was was particularly disappointing as well, certainly in the first half. Uh, I think he grew as the game went on, but still, you know, nowhere near as good as Bentoncourt, who was suspended for the game anyway, but got injured at the World Cup. And now there's fears that the injury might be worse than, than first thought and that he might miss the Villa game. And that would be a very big, a big loss for us if that injury um continues with Charleston injured as well so um you kind of need these other players to step up and I guess the worry was that those players who weren't at the World Cup didn't necessarily impress either so obviously there's some things to you know I'm kind of torn because on the one hand like I said a draw away at Brentford particularly given the number of players who are at the World Cup and and their record at home not the worst result in the world plus having that ability to come back but on the flip side players not exactly that the players you'd expect to maybe be performing better because they weren't at the world cup didn't necessarily turn up and we're still having these slow starts which where i agree with you is that they will come back to bite us and and, and will cost us if we don't stamp that out and i think it's nine games in a row now in all competitions where we've conceded first which is just un, unsustainable and, and the player who i particularly had a, a massive rant at when i was watching the game um, with my dad was Eric Dyer because it was his bizarre clearance that put the ball out for the corner that Brentford scored their second goal from where he was under no pressure whatsoever but he decided to put his his leg through the ball completely skied it and it went out for a corner and for me I think you know you were talking about doing business in January I think the priority for Spurs has to be and there's conflicting reports as to what actually our priorities are in the window but for me, what the Brentford game really kind of underlined was that as long as we have this defence, I, I think there's a, a, a natural ceiling on, on what we can achieve. Because I think you asked me if, um, a while back who I'd most be worried about if they're out of the team. And I said Romero, because then we're basically back to the same defence we had three or four years ago. Um, and lo and behold, Romero wasn't there. You have um, Davies and and, and Dyer and, and Sanchez coming on. Sanchez played pretty well, to be fair, better than Sanganga. But these are players that ultimately were reserve players five or six years ago. And they've only become first team players, not because they've got any better. I think in some instances you could argue they've gotten worse. It's only because the players who were better than them have left and haven't really been properly replaced. I mean, Romero is the only centre back we've signed since Davison Sanchez back in 2017, who's actually got into the team. I think the only other centre-back who signed in between them was Joe Roden, who's on loan at Wren and might be getting sent back because of lack of game time. So um, I think as long as those defensive frailties exist, we're going to keep having these um, these issues. And, and that's, I guess, kind of moving it on to kind of what business we, our, our teams might do in the new year. That's where I think we most need to to strengthen. But as I said, there's conflicting reports and it might be that we have other priorities that we wait to the summer to get whichever centre-back it is we we really want. But I think ultimately my main learning from Brentford game was that the defence is, you know, it doesn't matter who we have up front or in midfield or even in the dugout, as long as we have this back line, which I think Perisic and Romero are the only two players across all of our backline options who wouldn't look out of place playing for another big six side. But I don't think any of our other defenders get into any other uh, big six starting 11. In a, in a way, that's a consequence of a lack of managerial continuity because you haven't been able to build that structure. But even with Conte, you know, you bring in Perisic, great, but you don't build a defensive unit around Perisic for the next five years. That's a one-year punt, potentially. You know, it can catch up with him quite easily. Romero seems like a leader you've got an aging keeper who let's be honest despite his France form 
does make a lot of mistakes. Um, I didn't really think about this, but you're right about the centre-backs. You know, Eric Dyer really came in as a midfielder, if I'm right. Or I remember yeah. him playing as defensive midfielder. So that, where's that leadership at the core, the back? You know, it's been fullback, fullback, fullback. Yet all these fullbacks and none of them are really sticking. And I think it does remind me parallels a bit with Arsenal, how we had this just a terrible back four we couldn't get right. And Arteta stuck with one. He had a temporary solution. But, you know, we're lucky in a way we bought Saliba. But, you you know, you've, we've now got a more solid unit. And I think it is, I think it is a lot very much understated, that partnership, that centre-back partnership. And I think Spurs, I always seem to think that there's another player playing centre-back for Spurs this week. Whereas, you know, at an Arsenal at the moment, those are your two centre-backs. You have options at the back if someone's injured or suspended, but those are your two starting centre-backs. They can build a relationship. They have chemistry with the keeper. And I think that is the core defensive unit. I can't remember, you know, I, I think all the teams that really end up winning these top trophies or competing, you can almost reel off the lineups to an extent themselves. There is depth, but you know who the default is. And with Spurs, especially that back line, I couldn't tell you who's going to be your starting right back, left back or centre-backs um, ever. Yeah, I mean, I think to be fair, one player who I, I forgot to mention, who to be fair to him, did provide the assist for the equaliser is, is Longley, who who came in on loan in the summer and has looked good um, at times. But I think, you know, we ultimately we signed him on loan because we weren't able to sign Bastoni, who was the, the player who Conte really wanted. And I think to be fair to Conte, he did try and, and get a centre-back in the summer, but as you know, the one we wanted, we couldn't get, and and Longley was kind of the compromise. And it'll be interesting to see how well Longley does over the the second half of the season. Does that loan become permanent? Do we, you know, like like I say, do we go back? I mean, Conte seems to be suggesting that he's happy with his centre back options, but I can't imagine that that he is. I, I feel like that's something he's saying just because he he maybe knows that he's not going to get the play he really wants in January, and he, he wants to not kind of throw the the ones he has under the bus because he's still got the rest of the season to, to work with them. Maybe he doesn't want to dent their confidence. Maybe he he sees them as being low on confidence and that's why they're, they're prone to conceding so many goals. But I think centre-back is a problem issue and I think it is something we've tried to identify, but I wonder whether we need to, I don't know, it's tricky because on the one hand, I was going to say you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Just go out and get somebody who can improve the team now if you can't get your top target. But then again, Liverpool waited for Van Dyke, and that paid off. I mean, it, there was a time when people were saying that they would just needed to settle and bring someone in, but they they waited and got Van Dyke eventually, and and he was that transformational player who really propelled them onto to winning the the title in the Champions League. Um, so maybe the the best strategy is to wait for that that player who you think is worth it. But it does worry me in the short term if it is just going to be. I'd imagine Romero, Dyer, and one of Longley or Davies, and then the fullbacks is probably Perisic, and then, I mean, right wing back seems to be where the priority is in January because neither Doxy nor Royale has really made that position their own, and it's such a an important position to how Conte wants to play. Um, but then again, you come back to the question of well, if you don't have the right players for the system, do you then need to change the system? But then again, you go back to the Liverpool example or the or the uh, City example, or even you know the Arsenal example. If you have a manager who has a certain system and a certain style, and that's how they believe the team should play, then is it not better to to stick to that and and bring in the players who can suit that rather than having the manager kind of compromise to the players around him? I don't know, um, but certainly. I mean, with the defence as well, you know, Marie, when I mentioned Joe Roden earlier. Mourinho wanted Milan Skriniar from Inter Milan. We ended up with Joe Roden. We wanted Bastoni. We ended up with Longley. Maybe the problem is the fact that we've been kind of settling for, for second best options rather than holding out. And, and what we need to do is actually just go out and pay the big bucks for that big player. I mean, everybody in the World Cup was raving about uh, Vardiol from Croatia, who um, was somebody we'd been linked with in the past, but I think is probably now out of our price range. But I think these days the, the defenders almost are the most valuable players. You know, you're kind of getting the transfer fees that ordinarily you'd associate with attacking players and now uh, what you have to pay to get a defender. And, and that's probably because people are, are kind of now valuing their importance accurately in maybe a way they weren't in the past. And I think maybe Spurs need to just 
find the money to pay the big bucks to get that defender because as I said with, with Van Dijk and Liverpool and as you've mentioned with Arsenal I mean I don't think Saliba was necessarily a massive signing but the right player in the right position can you know everything else can then follow on from that and I think you know there was a moment when I think we conceded the second goal and you know you have that classic shot of the players walking back to the centre circle you know with their heads down and it kind of went from Dyer and then the focus of the camera changed and, and then you saw Kane in the foreground and it was one of those moments where you you thought like we felt like, do you know what? I wouldn't blame Kane if in the summer he was like, I'm, I'm fed up of this. You know, how, how many more seasons can I be scoring goals basically every game, but can't rely on my defence to keep a clean sheet? Um, and you can understand that, you completely understand that frustration. And for as much as people might question, you know, what Kane's done in certain big matches and whether he's stepped up in finals, in the main, nobody probably has done more than him to try and drag Spurs to champions league football to try and win stuff and it's i think he's entitled to look at the players around him and go well until we have defenders who are as good at defending as i am at attacking when we're never really gonna achieve fully what we want to which in conte's eyes you know he's not here just to to finish in the top four and that's it he wants to win trophies he wants to compete for titles that's what he's grown accustomed to and I guess linking it to his future, if he thinks he's not going to have the the resources or the quality to do that, then he'll probably think about his future as well. And that's the other thing that's kind of hanging over the club at the moment and this January window is it doesn't just feel like this season's on the line. It feels like potentially next season, the next few seasons are on the line because so much at Tottenham right now feels on knife edge because it feels like Conte and Kane's futures are kind of dependent on on what happens. And I think that's contributing to a lot of sort of angst and, and anxiety among Spurs fans, certainly on Twitter about this January and what we're going to do, because it, it feels so decisive, both in the short term and the long term. I don't know how maybe Arsenal fans are feeling. Do you feel like you have this golden opportunity to win the league and you need to kind of strengthen now and capitalise on it now in case it, it doesn't come around again next season? Or are you calmer because you kind of feel like, do you know what, actually we're in a good position, we've got what we need and We'll get what we can, but come the end of the come the end of the month, we'll be kind of happy wherever we are. Or, or is there this sense of no, Hayes is injured, we need to bring someone in now. Well, I think on the on the first point, um, it's interesting because Spurs almost that is the problem that it's on a knife edge because of Conte and Kane. It's it's all about that planning because one of the right backs you missed out on just before was Spence. You know, next best right back hasn't played a game barely and what is the strategy because Spence and Perisic are two ends of the same coin Richarlison and Basuma and uh, Forster I mean Forster's a little bit different I mean to, to be fair to um, Richarlison and Basuma they're, they're both 25 I think actually what I think you've, you've hit on here is quite an interesting thing because I think there is a disconnect between what Conte's plan is and what the club's plan is because I think the club and Conte called Spence a club signing didn't he when that happened yeah Absolutely. And I think the the club's strategy has always been, certainly when Levy and Enoch have owned the club, the strategy has always been buying young, cheap players. You go all the way back, you know, your Aaron Lennons, your Gareth Bales, Deli Alley, right? Son when we signed him, Ericsson when we signed him, Walker, Rose. It's always been about buying this young talent, this young potential and doing things on a, on a budget relative to the other clubs and then kind of selling them for big fees but Conte wants ready-made, off-the-shelf players. He wants experience and he wants to win now. He's not a long-term project manager. And I think the fundamental tension every time we get to a transfer window is finding the balance between those things. And I think, to be fair, last January, we did find the balance in Kuliseski and Bentoncourt, who are two young players, both under the age of 25. I mean, Kuliseski's only 22, but who were also experienced. They'd been at Juventus, they'd won trophies, they were able to come in and, and immediately come into the team and hit the ground running. Obviously, we signed Perisic, but I thought it was, it was interesting that at the same time, we signed uh, Dennis Adogi and loaned him straight back. But it was, it was like, OK, we're buying one for now for Perisic, but also one for the future. And, and similar with Spence, like, OK, we'll give you Perisic, but we're going to sign Spence as well. Richarlison and Pesuma, I guess you could say, are players who are maybe in that sweet spot of being young enough that they fit the club's vision but also experienced enough in terms of being proven Premier League players to fit Conte, although it seems like Basuma's struggling and obviously Richardson's injured again. Um, 
But I think that's a difficult, you know, Conte's spoken a lot about the club's vision and having to understand the club's vision of buying younger players on kind of lower salaries. And you, you're kind of not sure whether he's saying that in a in a critical way, whether he's thinking, you know, that's the club's vision, but I'd much rather have a, a team of Ivan Perisic's. They want a team of Jed Spence's. Can we find the the middle ground that's going to make everyone happy? And I guess that's the kind of, if we can, then great. But if not, then you can see that's where it might fall apart. But you can imagine Conte, Levy, whoever your scouts are, Paratici, they're all, they're all rowers on a boat. And if they're not all rowing in the same direction at the same time, that's going to impact everything else, the destination. And, and for me, maybe I'm skewed and biased towards Arsenal. I mean, I know I am. But there's, even if you can't quite put your finger on it, you can see there's a culture and a, and a way of doing things and a vision. And I just can't see it with Spurs. I can't. I can't say this is Spurs' identity and this is what they're aiming to do and this is what they're building to do. Because to kind of build upon your next point about Arsenal, I don't think we need to spend for the sake of it. Because yes, this is the most amazing opportunity to potentially challenge for the league. I mean, it's still early days. We're not even halfway. So you'd kind of say, fill in the gaps, spend as much as you can and go and damn well win it. But at the same time, we've got a plan. So a lot of fans are saying... You know, if you don't win it, then at least we know where we're going and that we can challenge. And as Arteta said in his interview with Jamie Carragher, you know, we are we are on the right path. You know, we're, we're ahead of schedule. And so for me, this has been the thing. We, When Arteta came in, he made some bad mistakes, but they ripped it up. They got rid of a few people, players and staff executive board staff and said right this is now the new plan it's not just buying young players there's a there's a certain profile a certain personality profile a certain balance in the squad it's not about buying everyone and everything it's about saying who is the right fit for this team and you can see now there's unity and you can see it feels young and fresh you can see there's potential you can see everyone brings something different to the table and there's backup for that as well but with, I can't see the same. I mean, no one's talking about Spurs like this. No one's talking about, oh, look at the plan, look at the project. And, I, and to I guess honest, to be... if you look at the table, it's Liverpool win, United win their games in hand. They're three points behind Spurs. And everyone's saying what a great season. Or well, people are saying how great Spurs have been at points. And yet, no one's talking about Liverpool. But they'll, I... they'll nearly be there. Well, I guess to be fair, before the season started, if you'd said Spurs would be ahead of Liverpool, United and Chelsea you'd think Spurs were having a very good season. And Liverpool are expected to be above Spurs. You'd probably argue United, with the money they've spent over the years as well, all three of those clubs I just mentioned, should be expected to be above Spurs, considering the money they've spent. But I think, it was to your point about, you know, you were saying about the mistakes Arteta made at the beginning. And I think, to be fair to Conte, he has only been in the job just over a year. I think November was marked one year in the job. And I know because he's Antonio Conte and because of his reputation and what he's achieved in the past you maybe expect him to be able to do things instantly and, and kind of instantly transform the culture and instantly be able to have have success and to be fair he did have relatively instant success in terms of getting the club straight back into the Champions League at the first time of asking but I think he should be afforded the same amount of time and support and backing that Arteta was you know like you said Arteta was allowed to make mistakes was allowed to finish eighth in the league was allowed to have that time to you know, figure it all out. Um, and part of that was because, oh, well, it's a manager, you know, he, he was in his first job. But, you know, surely a manager like Conte has even more um, leeway to be given time and support because of what he's achieved. You know, with, with a manager in his, first, in his first job, there's no kind of back catalogue of work there that you can look at and know what he can do if given the right tools. You're kind of just going on, on kind of, it's a leap of faith. Where at least with Conte, there's a proven track record there. But, Obviously, the underlying thing there is you can only commit to a manager if the manager at the same time is committed to you. And I guess that's where we get back to the whole contract situation. And I mean, to be honest, contracts in football don't really mean anything. We know that a player or a manager can walk out anytime they want, really. It doesn't matter how many years they've got on the contract. But I think there is almost this sort of chicken and egg thing where it's like the club, because from the club's point of view, you can understand them thinking, well, we're not going to spend huge amounts of money on players for you if you might walk out at the end of the season. But from Conte's perspective, he's thinking, well, why why would I stay if you're not going to 
back me and support me. And it's kind of like they're each waiting for the other one to commit to each other. And maybe it's a case of kind of who blinks first. Um, but I think if Conte is committed and is in it for the, the long haul, then you have to give him that time and, and backing that, that Arteta had at Arsenal. Because, as I said, he, he's got the track record that proves if if you get the players for him, if you support him, he'll he'll deliver. And he's, he's done so. You know, it's not like with Mourinho where those successes were a bit more in the distant past. You know, Conte had won a league title with Inter Milan the season before he came to Spurs. Um, and in, in his two seasons in the Premier League with Chelsea, he won the league in the FA Cup. So I think you have to give him the time to build that and expect that that might take time. But on the flip side, that's only assuming that he is prepared to 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 take that time and he might not be willing to wait that long, in which case then maybe you have to make a, you know, it, maybe it comes to a head and then you have to make a decision. And it's interesting kind of the, if you'd asked me maybe last month, I would have been adamant that Conte was going to sign a new contract and stay. Now it, it feels like the mood is is different, but I don't know whether that's just because it's the transfer window and he's using his leverage, using this idea that he might walk out to try and get backing from the club. And on the other side, the club are kind of putting this idea out there like, well, you know, Poch is available. These managers are available. You know, if you don't want to stay, there's other options. And it's kind of just this this game of brinkmanship that the minute the window's over. And if we do bring players in and if they are as successful as Kulusevsky and Bensonkor were last January, then things could look very different come February, March. You know, we've had this kind of discussion about Conte and Spurs pretty much since the minute he walked through the door about is he, isn't he going to stay? I think last January, there was questions about whether he was going to walk. When we got to the summer, there were questions about whether he'd stay. But each time he stayed, he committed to the club and then the club committed to him and, and brought players in. So, you know, who are we to think that it, this might end up any differently? We might have a very successful January window. He might commit. He might finish in the top four again. And then we we kick on from there. But I think Spurs fans being quite pessimistic and doom and gloom, I think are already you know, fearing the worst and thinking this January is going to be a disaster. We're not going to bring the players in we need. Conte is going to basically throw us drop. We're, we're going to finish outside the top four. He'll leave in the summer. Kane will want out. And then we're potentially starting from scratch again. Um, I don't know. It kind of feels like all of those all of those possibilities are up in the air at the moment. And maybe it does happen. Maybe it's a good thing. I don't know. It's like Arsenal. We went to rock bottom and, you know, Pochettino is still free and maybe it is bringing that. I was reading the the high performance um, podcast book, and they, Pochettino is one of the one of the uh, commentators, and he talks about this energy uh, universal, the kind of positive energy he brought to Spurs at the time, and he did make them, whilst not a winning club in terms of trophies, he did bring a bit a bit of a more progressive culture to the club, and maybe it's not him, but it, it all seems like a bit of a mess from my side because. If I'm right in thinking, I don't know how much you spent the summer before last, but then you spent in January and that took you over the edge to get top four. And I'm not sure based on the summer you've just spent, whether that those funds are available for January, to be honest, and and whether there's real clarity of what's needed. Whereas with Arsenal, it seems pretty clear that they are desperate for an attacking midfielder. We nearly got one at the end of the last window and I'd be surprised at this stage if this Moydrick boy didn't happen because it seems like there's a profile, it's a position, we want it, that's what we need. And that's what we should have done in January. But obviously, they didn't think, you know, we should have done it with striker, but obviously they thought they could they could uh, leave it to the summer. And maybe, you know, maybe Spurs will say, you know what, we've got enough. And in the summer, they'll go by who they need. But you're right, it's a bit of a, a, bit of a domino act at the moment because I really think that, as you say, Kane and Conte are the are the key and but personally being realistic i can't see them committing long term now because i don't know if they i think conte in terms of his cycle probably had enough by that stage and kane i think certainly proved the loyal servant and to be honest with you it's not looking good for the the premier league really to win it um champions league will be very very hard and fa cup is almost almost already the final spin the dice. And I know everyone's kind of in that same position if you're you're out of the League Cup. But if you know if you don't win that trophy, Kane, you know, he can get into that Chelsea, Liverpool or City team, to be honest. Um whether what? or not he does that or not. Because I think 
it sounds like, you know, I think he's now gone down this, but potentially he's gone down this rabbit hole of saying, you know what? I haven't won trophies, but at least I'm going to be the best damn individual player. So let me just play at Spurs and get the goals that are going to get that record. Maybe that's how he's thinking right now, that individualistic aspect. What I would say, to be fair, I mean, we've been quite, and I mean, it's my, I'm the one who started it, to be fair, but we've been quite kind of down on, on Tottenham and pessimistic. But we are, I was thinking about this earlier because I was thinking, oh, you know, we've not kicked on since last season. We've regressed. But then actually I was thinking about it and I thought, well, hang on. If you compare where we are now to, to this time last season, we're in a much better position than we were. And we are in the knockout stages of the Champions League. We are in the top four as it stands. We are above Liverpool and United and Chelsea. You know, we are, you know, I've, I've seen Spurs teams be in a far worse situation than this one. And if we beat Villa on New Year's Day, then all of a sudden everything will be be looking rosy again. So I think I don't want to get too kind of over the top in terms of the, the pessimism um, because there has been progress. And actually, I think what's interesting about this discussion, this podcast is I think a lot of the um, the angst that Tottenham fans are feeling is because of how well Arsenal are doing and how well Newcastle are doing. I think the problem isn't necessarily that we've regressed this season, but rather Arsenal and Newcastle have maybe progressed more rapidly than people expected. And it's more the teams who are above us aren't the teams who we thought would be above us. You know, obviously we finished above Arsenal last season. We finished above Newcastle last season. I think there's a perception amongst Spurs fans that we should be doing better than Arsenal and Newcastle because we finished ahead of you both last season. And I wonder how different the perception would be around Spurs if almost it was flipped round if we were below Liverpool, United and Chelsea, but above Arsenal and Newcastle, if we were below the teams you'd maybe expect us to be below and above the teams you'd expect us to be above. I wonder whether kind of perceptions of our progress or lack thereof is just warped by the who's above and below us. And you're always kind of comparing yourselves to the other and whether it's just the fact that Arsenal are doing so well is what's making us maybe feel less less happy about where we are at the moment, which, as I said, relative to Spurs teams of the past isn't so bad. Um, but I think on Kane, I think it's interesting because obviously City are after him, but that's not going to happen now with Haaland. I don't think he'd move abroad. I know there's lots of rumours about Bayern Munich. I just don't see him doing that. I think he wants the Premier League record. The only place I could see him going abroad is the US, like after a while, because we know he loves NFL and he's even talked about being an NFL kicker one day when he retires from football. So I think if you're looking in the Premier League, I don't think Liverpool would spend the sort of money that we would ask for him, even with only, I think, two years left on his contract by this summer. Um, so really, you're only looking at United and Chelsea. Now, we're not going to sell him to Chelsea out of principle just because the, the two clubs do not do business with each other whatsoever. And I think even he would know going to Chelsea is it's not as bad as going to Arsenal, but it's not far off. And I'm starting to worry and think about United. We know they want a forward. Ronaldo's gone. There's, they missed out on Gakpo. But if United don't finish in the top four, which let's face it, I mean, they might not, then you'd think, well, is that really a, worth it for him if he's not going to be playing Champions League football? You know, it would being at United really get him any closer to winning those trophies than being at Spurs? Because, OK, this might change in the next couple of matches. I expect it to. But as it stands, we're we're ahead of United. And it I mean, at the moment you'd say Arsenal, City, Newcastle at this moment in time look nailed on for top four. But it's still, I mean, we're not even technically halfway through the season yet, really, in terms of games played. So a lot could yet change. Newcastle or Arsenal or City, you know, could fall away. But as it stands, it looks like a four-way race for fourth between Spurs, United, Liverpool, and Chelsea. So three out of those four clubs missing out on Champions League would be massive. We think how much money Chelsea have spent, the money Liverpool have spent, United, you know, even us, right? Any any three of those clubs missing out on Champions League would be huge. Um, and at the moment, you'd probably say Liverpool are the ones who have the momentum. They're doing business already in January. They're the ones who look like they could get it. United looking, I mean, it's, you know, Newcastle really have kind of thrown the cat amongst the pigeons and, and they're almost giving me kind of Leicester vibes at the moment. They just seem to have this momentum. They've got no European football in midweek. I don't know if necessarily they'll they'll fully do the Leicester and go and win the title, but at this moment, it's, you know, and if they do big business in January, which we know they've got the funds to do, who's to say they can't kick on and and <laughs> you know they could win the title? So I think it's um, 
you know, that could also then have a knock on effect on games. Maybe Newcastle's where he goes. I mean, you know, because you'd think, the, you know, United and Chelsea, but neither of them might finish in the top four. They might be closer to winning the trophy than Spurs, with all due respect. Newcastle? Yeah. Why not? Well, probably. But I mean, but th- then this is the thing that's also quite, I think, here's where I get kind of depressed about the state of modern football because, and you must feel this a bit with Arsenal, because despite how well you're playing, despite the fact that you're top, any other season, you'd think, right, you're the favourites for the title now, being in this position at this point of the season. But everybody is kind of thinking, oh, no, well, City will do it because it's City. And and if the Premier League does end up becoming just City versus Newcastle every year, and it's just basically unless you're owned by a, a nation state who are going to pump billions into you, you've got no chance of winning the Premier League. It's kind of like, well, then what is left for even big teams like Tottenham to do if they can't win the Premier League, probably can't win the Champions League? Then it's just what every year it's just the FA Cup and hope you you qualify for the Champions League. It's kind of like the you know Newcastle doing well on one hand is breaking up the kind of big six cartel that's existed at the top of the Premier League for the past ten years or so, but it's only just replacing it with another superpower. It's not really making it more even. You know, it's not like when Leicester did it and you felt like oh that makes you think anybody has a chance because Newcastle okay you've got to spend the money sensibly which they have done, but it's still fueled by something that not every club is going to have access to. So I don't know. Yeah, Newcastle probably would be closer to it, but then it makes you think, well, is all we can hope for just waiting for a takeover? Yeah, I mean, I I think the hope for everyone is that almost it gets to the point where so many teams have similar financial resources that they almost all say, we're not all going to throw money and waste money it all becomes about who's more clever or actually if we're all spending the same, let's just cap it. I think mm. that, I think some sort of cap is the way forward, but then, you know, all the valuations have to shift. And at the end of the day, valuation is in the eye of the beholder. Who's to say Anthony is worth hundred million yet Richarlison goes for 50 million. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Or Gabriel Jesus going for 45 million. How does that make sense? You know, considering that their records. So, I don't know. I don't think it can continue like this because ultimately there aren't as there are a lot of rich people and funds in the world. But are there enough to cover all the Premier League teams or will it just run out and then people are running away with it? I don't know. I don't know how I'm surprised we haven't got to that stage already because, you know, with all the financial woes in the world and the wars and et cetera and the pandemic, it's still spending more than ever, more than ever, literally. So I don't know what's going to happen because at the end of the day, who's going to want to buy United and Liverpool if they know that even if they have all that money and spend, they're still not guaranteed success. It's almost like the novelty you're aware of. Because the PSG, they're like, well, there's only one team in France now. City, it was kind of like, well, now one team. But if you have six teams all with the money, it's kind of, like, what's the point? If I can't buy success for these billionaires, what is the point? It's not fun. It's not fun finishing sixth. I guess that's why they wanted the Super League, isn't it? Because they had then sure. the guaranteed revenue. Yeah, guaranteed to be at the top table. But then again, who would want to go in the Super League and bottom the Super League? Yeah. Like, like Spurs would be, with all due respect. <laughs> but in- interesting. I mean, I guess changing tax slightly. It's been a year in which Arsenal seems to be full of hope going forward. Spurs, it's on the brink. Yet, you know, in the summer, Spurs, the one who secured Champions League football, we'd had our biggest failing. But it'd be interesting to know kind of what your your biggest positive out of 2022 is, your biggest highlight in a way. Is there any a specific moment, a specific match, a specific goal, a specific off-the-field antics that's kind of given you hope? And And, and following that, What's your, I suppose, New Year's resolution for 2023? Well, from from a Spurs point of view, definitely the highlight of the year was the 3-0 win over Arsenal at White Hart Lane, which basically secured Champions League football. Obviously, really, it was Arsenal losing at Newcastle and then winning Norwich on the last day. But that was kind of the big, it was probably the biggest North London derby for many, many years. It was the first at the new stadium with a full capacity crowd such huge stuff riding on it that stage of the season and to win it so emphatically and I was there that night and the atmosphere it was just 
and and it completed this kind of comeback where we looked completely dead and buried in the top four race and managed to pull it off right at the end. And, and that gives me hope that maybe this season, you know, playing the long game, it's a marathon, not a sprint, uh, that will, will come on strong as the season progresses like we did last year. Um, Non-Spurs related highlights, though, would also be uh, the Lionesses winning the Euros. Obviously, England fell short, the, the men's team fell short of the World Cup, but I was lucky enough to be at Wembley for the final of that. And also at the um, London Stadium for the National League playoff final to see Grimsby back in the Football League. Uh, so between Spurs pipping Arsenal to fourth, Grimsby getting promoted, and then uh, the Lionesses winning the Euros, the summer was quite quite glorious from a footballing point of view. In terms of New Year's resolutions, I think if if I'm Spurs, I'm thinking that the resolution has to be to start playing football from minute one, not waiting until maybe the 70th minute or when you're 2 nil down. I think that's the biggest thing Spurs need to change if they want to have a successful season, because as much as our our incredible strategic work on the training ground and fitness gives us the ability to come back. Uh, we can't we can't keep relying on that, I think. Um, and that's definitely something we need uh, to fix and 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 fix that uh, defence as well. And I guess throwing it back to you, what's been your your highlight of 2022 and, and your resolution for, for 23? I like hearing your your multi uh, your multi team successes. That's that's nice. I, I don't quite have that, but. I appreciate it. I think I'm going to say something very Spursy here and say that I think one of my proudest moments this year was when we lost 2-1 to Man City. And we just looked better than Man City, the way we played that whole game at the Emirates. It was like, oh, my God. Was that New Year's Day as well? I think it was New Year's Day, yeah. It was like, look at what this team can do. And and it kind of, you know, we, we kind of went on a run from there. And yes, we did stumble at the end. But that was kind of the seeds of, oh, my God, this team has potential. And if it could do it like this, if it could do it that consistently, you're looking at an era like Barcelona 2008 <laughs> without trying to be too hyperbolic. Um, I think this season, it was the being able to beat the likes of Liverpool and Chelsea kind of comprehensively was something different. And so I'm proud we were able to break that barrier and compete against the big teams and play this amazing football and have a style. And so I think that that's been a real success and highlight for me is just being able to see progress and growth and hope. And for a long time, we didn't have that. You, we kind of stood still as a club. It was predictable. But now I think there's hope again and there's, there's an atmosphere and a real, uh, a real positive culture around the place. I think 2023... The one lesson would be, and it kind of applies to a lot of things, is learn from your mistakes. You know, Arteta didn't rotate for a long time last season. It ended up in injuries, um, ends up in fatigue. You have a big squad. You're probably going to spend. We need to rotate, so use it. Um, and I think in, in that turn, in terms of signings, we saw what Spurs did last year. They gave themselves the boost in January. You've got a chance. Do it. You know, it's about, you know, that's what all the big teams do and the good teams do. United with the key at this. You think, oh, well, their team's perfect as it is. You add that extra person you don't need. It, it puts everyone on their toes because in a way, I think it's really helped our team knowing that, you know, a Fabio Vieira is just behind you if you're Odegaard or, you know, um, as Zinchenko for Tierney, it's pushed him. Tomiyasu and White, centre-backs, not so much. Centre-mids, not so much. But you have a few people in the wings. You know, if you've got Smith-Rowe, Martinelli, Saka, Odegaard, Vieira, potentially Mojic, all competing for the same positions, you know, everyone's going to try and be their best. And therefore, you have a better squad. There's also that mention about Jao Felix. And again, I would say, if that fits with the strategy and it's doable, do it. Because I'd rather have him than Chelsea have him, even if it doesn't go well. I'd rather keep him away from our our title the challengers. Let's be our top four challengers. Let's be let's be those trick that tricky team, that annoying team that that pinch people from other people. So there's a lot of trust we have to put into the board. But I think it's so early. You know, this World Cup is like, as it's kind of fully looping on the podcast. The World Cup skewed time, and whilst everyone feels like oh my god, it's Christmas and New Year and Arsenal are top, we're not even halfway. It could easily unfold. We could lose to Brighton, draw against Newcastle, and then we're back in the top four race and long live the title charge. I don't think we're going to win the title, 
but I'd like for us to, you know, reach for the moon. If we fall, we'll, 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 we'll be amongst the stars. Um, when I say stars, I mean City and Newcastle. <laughs> I like how you said you didn't want to be too hyperbolic and then compared Arsenal to potentially the greatest club team of all time with Barcelona 2000, <laughs> 2008. Who's, who's Messi in that comparison? Who's Messi in that comparison? Kai Saka, of course. Of course. And I wonder, do you have any out there predictions for, for 2023? Any any feelings or things you, you think might mm-hmm. happen? I don't know if it's an out there prediction to say Newcastle to finish in the top four, but I, I, I have a feeling that might happen. And if I'm going to be really out there as of today, and this feeling changes on a daily basis, but as of today, my big prediction for 2023 from the Spurs point of view is that come the summer, Mauricio Pochettino will be manager again. Jeez. Not 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 passing any comment on whether or not I want that to be the case. It's just the feeling I have uh, as of, as of today. Wow, whether that would be by the summer, but not necessarily even in the summer. It could even be sooner rather than later. Who knows? Sooner. I think Wenger will be back at Arsenal in some capacity, potentially as an ambassador. Or I thought you meant as manager for a second. Oh God, help me! No, please, no, God. Um, I think there'll be talks about Arteta going elsewhere. I think if we somehow put on a sustained title challenge, I mean, almost in a way, if he wins it, that might be bad for us long term. Uh, but I won't say no to a, to a win. I think I think Newcastle could win a trophy. I reckon the FA Cup could be a possibility. Um, are they in the Carabao Cup as well still? Are they in the Carabao Cup? I'm not sure. But I think, you know, they will be that surprise package. Um but again, it's still so early. I think, I think Liverpool's still going to surprise. You know, they've spent well. They've now bought Gakpo. I think that's a real um, sign of how a big club's reputation. Uh, it still has that bit of that glowing after effect on a team. And I don't know. I just think that my biggest prediction is that we will be having a St Tossigrams Day next year in 2023, oh, and that will be, God. and I will love it. And I will cherish it and I will rub it in everyone's faces more than Spurs have done because Spurs have taken it for granted. But if we can have that, in the words of Spursy fans, that is the greatest trophy we could have. Well, I, Spurs is like a trophy. I think it shows the, the difference in mentality between the... I, I think if Spurs had something like St. Ottingham's Day, we'd be accused by Arsenal fans of small-minded mentality, only celebrating finishing above your rivals. But I think it, it shows who really has the... Uh, the, the small mentality in the in the fan bases. Well, it could all change in two weeks if Spurs win all their games and Arsenal drops some points. Could be f- nearly flipped in the table. And uh, when it comes to that North London derby in January, that could be a, a title decider. It will be um, it will be very interesting to see what happens. And I'm I think we need to get into it again. But uh, you know there are enough fixtures in the next few weeks to to really wear our appetite and be back into um, back into you know, Premier League domestic football. Yeah, a top four decider was was hard enough. I think a a, tight, a North London derby title decider would be too much for us to handle. And one that we probably win at this form. We'll see. We'll see. It'll be live. <laughs>